0: All right, Hebrews chapter number nine, Hebrews chapter, a message that has been on my heart for a little while, and I I, I mentioned this to the men last night, and I think I'll mention it to you this morning, that uh, we're living in a day and age where things have changed drastically as far as Christianity, church, Christian culture, so to speak, and I know that Frequently, you will find that as a pastor that I, I don't have a lot of good to say about modern Christianity and what I, I just call it the contemporary church movement. And some people say, well, don't you mean con- contemporary Christian music movement? Well, no, I don't because music is only a part of it. Uh, things have drastically changed as far as Convictions, standards, morality, Bible versions, yes, music, uh, it all goes together, folks, and what we are seeing as Christianity today is far from where we ought to be and certainly far from what the Bible teaches. And the reason that I say something about it so frequently is because that's the problem that we have today. You know, back in the Apostle Paul's day, you had issues as far as eating meats offered to idols, and so Paul dealt with that. The same principles apply for us today, but we don't have the issues in our culture as far as eating meats to offered to idols, but we certainly do have issues. And the music and the Bible version and the dress standards and all of those things are issues that we have to deal with. And so I believe that every preacher, if he's a man of God, he should be dealing with the sins and the problems of his generation rather than just preaching to the choir or, you know, blasting some hypothetical person or church or ministry out there or something of the past. We need to deal with the problems that we face. And so even though we get accused of being a hobby horse preacher, I believe that uh, we have a responsibility to deal with our problems today, and that's certainly where my heart is. As I thought about what we're dealing with today and what church has become, people have, what I believe, have tried to create a God that's after their own image rather than recognize that we are created by God after His image. We are in Laodicea, the people's rights, and people want to have a God that satisfies them rather than accept the God or accept God as He is and recognize that we're here for His pleasure rather than He's there for our pleasure. And so modern Christianity has become really not a whole lot more than just an emotional pacifier, a motivator, a, um, uh, an emotional therapist, if you will, to deal with all of my emotional and relational problems. And listen, the Word of God deals with those issues. But as I've said a hundred times before, I'll repeat it, the problem with modern Christianity isn't always what they're saying, it's what they're leaving out. And there are some major themes in the Bible that modern Christians know absolutely nothing about. And that's our problem. We need to know Bible doctrine. And what we're going to be talking about here today, I believe, is a vital teaching that every one of God's children ought to have a strong handle And what we're going to talk about here today ought to mean something. I mean something deep and meaningful in the heart of every one of God's children. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 22 says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. I thank God that we have a hymnal and we sing hymns that uh, I mean, our hymnal is filled with songs about the blood. Amen, but modern music and Christianity doesn 't have a whole lot to say about the blood has a lot to say about the love of God and the acceptance of God once again, these are all important themes, but I mean, can wouldn't you agree with me that of all the important vital themes in the Word of God, certainly the blood is right up there in the top five, amen? And it's what we ought to be focusing on. And so I want to preach here this morning on the history of the blood. I want to make sure that every, every person here today, whether you are a child or an old saint of God, I want to make sure that we see a clear picture from beginning to the end of what the blood is all about and why it is so important. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for the precious blood that was shed upon Calvary's cross. Lord, there is no way that I can do this topic justice today Lord, uh, it is, uh, as a pastor, it's my heart's desire to hit the highlights, make sure that we have a general understanding, but Lord, there's just so many things that we could talk about and that certainly at another time needs to be talked about. But I pray that we would leave this place today with the reminder of how precious and how important the teaching of the blood of Jesus Christ is, and I pray that it would change our lives and change our mental uh, outlook on life. And I pray that it would encourage us here today. Thank you, Lord, for the songs that we've already sung. Thank you for that sweet lily of the valley song. And we pray that you would just bless us. If there be anyone that's listening today, whether it be in the congregation or out there in live stream, we pray that the Holy Spirit of God would touch that heart and bring them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, I'll do the best I can to explain it and to keep it simple, but Lord, only the Holy Spirit can bring it to the hearts of a lost sinner. And we pray that you would do just that today. In Jesus' name, amen. As I've already said, the blood is one of the most important themes in the Bible. And it is neglected by modern Christianity. And so an overview of the blood. I want to start out first of all and mention the first animal sacrifice. In Genesis 3 verse number 21 it says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. The purpose of this first animal sacrifice was to cover man's nakedness and shame. These are the first consequences of sin. It's an internal consequence, and it's an indicator that something happens spiritually in the soul of man, and that now all of a sudden when God shows up, there's a shame of nakedness. Now, when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, their eyes were opened, exactly what God said would happen, happened, and they saw each other and they saw that they were naked before the sin nature came in. They were not self-conscious. There was no consciousness of sin, and so there was no shame in their nakedness. But once they took of that fruit, there was shame. What did they do? They took and they sowed fig leaves to try to cover their nakedness and their shame between one another. But then God showed up. And if you will remember, when Adam heard the voice of the Lord, he hid himself there in the garden. And God said, Adam, where art thou? Adam said, I heard your voice, and I was afraid because I'm naked. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree that I told you that you shouldn't eat of? And of course, we know the story that that was what had happened. And so Adam recognized when God showed up that his fig leaves that he had made were not adequate in the presence of an holy God. And you know, there's a picture there, folks. Man's religion tries to cover man's nakedness, man's sin problem with man-made fig leaves. Church affiliation, baptism, communion. I mean, the list could go on and on. Man's religion tries to produce fig leaves, but it will not hide that consciousness of sin and nakedness when God shows up. You know what? There's a lot of people that, whether it be Literal physical nakedness or moral nakedness. People are fine and comfortable as long as they're not in the presence of something that brings reproach to their nakedness. I've seen it a hundred times if I've seen it once. I've seen, I've seen, uh, women dressed immodestly and they just walk around without any apparent shame and don't think anything about it until some old, holy man of God shows up. And then they start tugging at the skirt, trying to get it a little bit lower. Or they go and they throw on a sweater. And I've seen it a hundred times. And you know what? That ought to say something, that in front of man, we can hide our nakedness. But when God shows up, it's not enough. Now, if you go to the average church today, I mean, God, the Bible says here that God killed. He sacrificed animals in order to provide coats of skins for Adam and Eve. I don't know what animals those were. I've heard all kinds of speculations, and I've heard preachers get a blessing and preach a blessing as that they think that they have it figured out. I don't know what these animals were, but I do know that the blood of the animals had to be shed, and that God had to provide a covering that was adequate. Now, if you look at modern Christianity today and you see the covering, especially of ladies in the church, you would think that all God had to kill is a couple squirrels and a rabbit. It's true, is it not? Way too much immodesty, way too much skin showing among God's people, and folks, it ought not be. God provided this, this sacrifice, and the purpose was for covering of man's shame. The first mention of blood in the Bible, the, the word blood appears for the very first time in Genesis 4.10, and it implies that God sees blood as a living entity. Now I'm not being any, you know, trying to present any crazy doctrine, but look at what the Word of God says in Genesis 4:10, and He said, "What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground." We have blood here that's crying out. God hears this blood speaking, and so God is implying that it is a living entity. Now, this comes from the story of Cain and Abel. We'll get to that here in just a minute. But my next point is this, is that God forbids the eating of blood. You know, I like to watch these um mountain men shows and survival shows, and I've seen this, I don't know how many times that somebody... It, to survive kills an animal, and as a ritual, the first thing that they do is they take a part of that animal, usually the heart, and I don't mean to be gross or gruesome here today, but they'll take and they'll remove the heart from that animal, and it's dripping with blood, and they'll just take a bite out of it, like, I don't know, mountain man sushi or something. But do you know that God forbids the eating of blood? You know, Lewis and Clark on their expedition, they had to expend so many calories each day. I mean, they're lugging boats and supplies and they're going through steep mountains all the way out to the west coast. And I mean, they are, they are burning a lot of calories every day. And so they'd have to hunt for their food. Now deer and elk and even buffalo are not, I mean, they're fairly lean compared to when we get a juicy steak that's been raised in a pen, you see a lot of marbling there and a lot of fat. But you know, when you expend a lot of calories, your body ends up craving fat content. And Lewis and Clark and all of his men, they they couldn't get enough fat and enough calories. And so when they would kill a deer or an elk, they would take all of the innards and they would actually drain the blood and they would make what they called blood sausage. And they would eat that because the fat content in the blood and those inner organs was so much more than just the meat was. And I thought about that, and I thought, you know what, that's one thing, but God forbids the eating of blood. Look at what it says in Genesis 9 and verse number 4, but flesh with the life thereof which is the blood thereof shall ye not eat. Now, boys and girls, listen to this. You have blood flowing in your veins. When you cut yourself, then that blood is released. And you know what? It's not a good thing for too much of that blood to escape because that is your life. And people who have injuries and too much blood is being lost, they end up dying from that. Why? Because the life Of the flesh is in the blood. And you know, that's a principle. That's the reason that people in the Old Testament would present blood sacrifices to God. Because God wasn't looking for something that man could make. God was looking for something that He had made. And God is the giver and the creator of all life. And so the blood represents the life, and when Adam and Eve sinned, they died, and so that blood represents a, a covering, if you will, and a restitution of that life, propitiation, but we'll say more about that in time to come. Now, Leviticus chapter 17 and verse number 10 says, "...and whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel..." or of the strangers that sojourn among you that eateth any manner of blood. This is not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. I will even set my face against that soul that eateth blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Therefore I said unto the children of Israel, No soul of you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger that sojourneth among you eat blood. So clearly we have Genesis 9, right after the flood, God tells Noah that, listen, you, all of the beasts of the field, I've given it to you to eat, but just don't eat the blood. Under the Levitical law that God gave through Moses, God says, I don't want you or a stranger eating blood. And so someone would say, well, that's the Old Testament. That's the law. We're under grace. Well, thank God for grace. Amen? And I will say this. The grace of God enables us to eat what I think is some very delicious things that the Jew in the Old Testament was forbidden to eat. Bacon? Thank God for grace. Amen. We get to eat bacon and shrimps. You say, don't you mean shrimp? Who wants to eat one? I like a lot of them. Amen. So you can eat shrimp if you want. I eat shrimps. But those things were changed. But consider Acts 15 and verse number 28. The apostles are trying to figure out how do we deal with Gentile converts? it's different. Do do they have to keep all the same laws that we've been keeping? And they said this, for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. Now I will say this, as children of God, under saved by grace, if you eat blood, doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. But you are disobeying God, and God said right after the flood, don't eat blood. He said to Moses and the Levitical priesthood, don't eat blood. And then the beginning of the Gentile church, God said, don't eat blood. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't plan on eating blood. Amen? I get the picture that God doesn't want us ingesting blood. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, have have you ever just, have you ever cut into a fairly rare steak and, you know, you get some red stuff that comes out on your plate? I I did, I, I was worried about that. And so, I talked to a bunch, you know, that's actually not necessarily blood, it's just kind of moisture that's in there. But anyhow, I I don't think that God's necessarily talking about a rare steak, and I don't want to ruin the day of any of you that like your steak extra rare. Although I find not a whole lot of people around here like it that way. How many of you like really, really rare steaks? See, not many around here. You go out west, oh my goodness, I've known people that when you cook their steak, they don't even want the steak sitting still on the grill. Move it across this way, turn it, move it across this way, put it on my plate. <laughs> I'm like, uh, no thank you. I, I, I don't like cowboy sushi. <laughs> oh my goodness. But God says, don't eat blood. Why? Because the blood is the life of the creatures that I've created, God says. Now, the sacrifice of Cain and Abel. Let's take a look at that. Genesis 4, verse 3 3 through 5, it says, in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. Fruits, vegetables, things out of his garden that he tended, And, and I am sure that what he brought before the Lord were beautiful. Have you ever seen just gorgeous produce? I mean, just the, just perfectly shaped and the perfect color. Now, I've eaten produce that didn't necessarily look that good, but tasted really good. But when you, I mean, when you get a tomato that is just big and there's just no splotches on the skin, it's all smooth and there's no, no bug damage. It's not splitting or cracking anywhere. You look at that tomato and you just go, wow, that's beautiful. And then when you slice into it and slap that with a little mayonnaise on some bread and eat a tomato sandwich, that's even better, amen? I am sure that Cain had some beautiful produce to offer to the Lord. But notice it goes on to say in verse number four, and Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And so you think about this, a beautiful basket of fruit and vegetables. That's what you paint pictures of, right? Over here, you have probably a lamb, a cute lamb they can be really cute, by the way. And you have Abel, once again, I'm not trying to be gruesome, I'm trying to get a point across here. You have Abel taking a knife, slitting that animal's throat, and the blood coming out, and then he takes that animal, puts it on an altar, and it's burned. Not a pretty sight. You and I would look at that and we would think, oh, Cain's is so much better than Abel's. But God looks at things way different than we do. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect and Cain was very wroth and his countenance fell. God doesn't approve of just any old worship, folks. And once again, that's what modern Christianity is guilty of, is saying, we like this music, we like this form of worship, we like it this way, and so we're going to present what we like to God, and God saying, I don't have respect to that. I got respect for people who are worshiping me in spirit and truth the way that I want to be worshiped. That's what we need to focus on. It's not about what gives us an emotional release. It's what God approves of. Amen. Most of modern worship today is nothing more than a love fest with our own feelings. And it needs to be, it needs to be solemn and it needs to be sacrifice and it needs to be reverential. People talk about music and they, they take the song leader, the music leader, and they call him the worship leader. Let me tell you something, music may be a small part of worship, but it's a small part. Worship is so much more. Worship, I mean, you you want to really worship God, then most of it's not going to be in a church auditorium with a band and a drum set up here on the platform. It's going to be you in your alone prayer closet on your face before God, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Humbling ourself and exalting Him. That's real worship. That's life-changing worship. We don't hear of that very often, do we? Worship's become a performance on the platform that makes everybody feel a certain way. That's not God's way. That's not the sacrifice that God is looking for. All right, let's take a look now at Noah's sacrifice. Genesis chapter number eight. And Noah built an altar unto the Lord. This is after the flood. And took of every clean beast and of every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Have you ever wondered? I know that God does things numerically. He has a kind of a system of numbering. And there are certain numbers in the Bible that really carry a lot of meaning. Uh, The number seven is almost always associated with a number of completion or perfection. The number 40 is almost always associated with some type of a testing. The number 13, teenagers, you know what it stands for? Rebellion. Most of you parents that have teenagers or have had teenagers go, oh, Makes sense to me. But there are numbers that mean something. God said to Noah, I want two of every beast, male and female, but of the clean animals, I want seven. And I thought about that one time. Why seven? got male and female. You've got one that's not going to be paired up with anyone. Well... Here's the answer right here. God said, after Noah got done with sacrificing one of every clean animal, you've got three pairs of two, you've got six clean animals, and obviously God, I believe, wanted man to continue offering clean animal sacrifices to him, and so the population of the clean animals needed to be more than the population of the unclean. You know what I see here? I see that God has a purpose in everything that he does. He just doesn't do things arbitrarily, even though I will say this, if he wanted to, he certainly could because he's God. And notice it says here that Noah offered this burnt offering on the altar in verse 21, and the Lord smelled a sweet savor. And the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, neither will I again smite anymore every living thing as I have done. You know, God didn't say that the imagination of man's heart from his youth used to be before the flood. He's saying, I'm not going to curse the earth because this is the way man is. I think God's recognized the fact that I don't think God recognizes anything, but I think God is helping us recognize that we are what we are, and we're a mess from our youth, and aside from the blood of Jesus Christ, nothing can fix it. The smell of all the burning flesh must have been repulsive to Noah and his children, but it was a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. Luke 16 and verse number 15, Jesus said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. God has a different outlook. God is looking for a different smelling savor than what man's looking for. Now, I I certainly... There can be somebody in our neighborhood grilling steaks, and I smell it. I mean, it's kind of like, you've heard of, was it uh, Pavlov's dog that they they trained it? I I don't know about Pavlov's dog, but I have known people that have had cats that as soon as the electric can opener goes, the cat runs to the bowl. It's a trained response because the cat knows when I hear this noise, I'm getting ready to get food, right? Well, I'm that way. When I I smell steak grilling in the neighborhood, my mouth begins to water. And, And I always stop what I'm doing, and I want to find out if it's coming from my grill. And sometimes, actually, it is. Steak, chicken, it's all good stuff, amen? I'm talking a lot about food today, right? Nobody's probably listening to my sermon because you can't wait to go get some food. I don't know. What smells good to us is not what smells good to the Lord. That burning flesh, it's repulsive. But God says it's a sweet-smelling savor. I think what we see here is that God's looking at man's soul Not on the outward appearance. God is looking at man and he sees us in our nakedness, in our shame, and in our sin. And when Noah presented that sacrifice before the Lord, the slaying of those animals, the blood that was shed, then that aroma comes up before the Lord and the Lord looks down and he sees Noah and he sees the human race in a different light. He sees that we are evil from our youth, that the imaginations of our heart, it's never going to be fixed. But because of that burnt sacrifice, God looks down in loving favor and he says, you know what, I'm not going to curse the earth for man's sake anymore. God has a great big heart of mercy and love. And even though he is righteous and holy and he has to judge sin or he wouldn't be righteous, But he still has a great big heart of love toward the human race. He wants to redeem us. He wants to save us. I see the next thing in the Word of God as we kind of get an overview of the history of the blood. I see where Abraham offers his son Isaac to the Lord. This is a test that God gave to Abraham Genesis 22 and verse number 10, And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son, to shed Isaac's blood, if you will. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son from me. You know, I see here in this account of Abraham and Isaac that the normal existence of sacrifices is implied. This is the kind of stuff that even though we go from Noah's sacrifice to this sacrifice, nothing else is mentioned of all of the, the, the history between those two events. It is implied that this was a common occurrence. How do we know that? Well, Genesis 22, verse 7, just a few verses before, and Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Isaac knew what a sacrifice to God was all about. Where's the lamb? So it is implied that this was a common occurrence among God-fearing people. Now, how can we look at this story without mentioning verse number 8? Dad, where's the lamb? I see we got everything else for this sacrifice. Where's the lamb? Verse 8, and Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So don't you mean that he meant to say God will provide for himself? No, God will provide himself. Remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus coming? He said, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was God himself, the Lamb of God. Thank God that Jesus came. God manifest in the flesh. Listen, if you have a Bible that says God will provide for Himself, get rid of it and get the Word of God. Amen? You got the wrong book because that messes up a major doctrine. Abraham knew exactly what he was saying when he told his son, God will provide Himself a lamb for a burnt offering. We see next here, In our overview of the history of the blood, we see the emphasis of lambs in all of these sacrifices. Now, the Old Testament is filled with various sacrifices. We have oxen being sacrificed. We have turtle doves. Even goats are part of the Levitical sacrifices. Some big ones, by the way. But the emphasis is on the lamb. I think about the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter number 12 and how many types of pictures the cross that the Passover lamb points toward the cross of Calvary. I don't have time to to look at Exodus 12, but if you know the story God told all of the children of Israel, I want you to sacrifice this Passover lamb. I want you to take its blood and put it in a basin and then tear off some stalks of, of hyssop. And I want you to dip it in that blood out of that basin and go to the front door of your house. And I want you to strike it on the side posts, the lentil and the other side post. And by the way, that pictures three crosses, pictures Calvary. In so many ways, that Passover lamb pictured Jesus Christ it was a lamb without blemish. Jesus was the sinless lamb of God. It was killed by the congregation. Crucify him, crucify him, said the congregation. Let his blood be upon our hands and on our children's. The lamb, the Passover lamb had no broken bones. Listen, Jesus, when he died on the cross there was not a single bone of him broken. Now, I believe all that his bones were out of joint, but they weren't broken. When the Roman soldiers came to check on those, uh, those that were being crucified, they came to both thieves, and that soldier would take that heavy spear and would break the legs of those hanging on the cross. And when they could no longer hold themselves up, With their legs, then they would go ahead and suffocate, and they would die. But when he came to Jesus, Jesus was already dead, and so not a bone of him was broken. The Passover lamb was eaten with bitter herbs. Listen, the Bible says that when Jesus shows up, there is no form nor comeliness that we should desire of him. Jesus was just plain, He was a simple man. There was nothing about him that we would follow in modern Christianity today. He was simple. He was quiet. He wasn't charismatic like John the Baptist. But oh, he told the truth. And he was an amazing, amazing Lamb of God. And then we see also in that Passover this concept of salvation by substitution. In Exodus 12, verse 13, "...and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you." That Passover lamb was salvation by substitution, and that is such an important truth that everybody ought to understand salvation by substitution. Now, the next stop on our overview of the history of the blood is that sacrifices were personal experiences. Take your Bibles and go back to Leviticus chapter number 1, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And I want you to see here in verse 1 through 9 that the sacrifices that the children of Israel would bring to the priest were very personal They didn't just take, they didn't just go out to their holding pen and grab a critter and then lead it to Jerusalem, show up at the tabernacle, and the high priest or one of the Levites come out and say, hey, here's my sacrifice, hand it to them, and then go home. That's not the way that it worked. Verse number one, and the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying... "'Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, "'If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, "'ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, "'even of the herd and of the flock. "'If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, "'let him offer a male without blemish. "'He shall offer it of his own voluntary will "'at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation "'before the Lord.' and he, watch this, he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And he shall kill the bullock before the Lord, and the priest, Aaron's son, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it Into his pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire upon the altar, and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priest, Aaron's son, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat in order upon the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar, but his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, and once again a sweet savor unto the Lord. These were personal experiences. If you brought an offering, you were part, you played a part in that sacrifice. I mentioned to the men last night, you know, we we live in a very, um, I guess, a sterilized culture today where these are the type of things that we don't even know. We don't even know what goes on for the most part. You know, some of you young people, You know, you talk about the slaying of an animal and the shedding of blood and cutting an animal up and you think, oh, that's horrible. And I want you to know, you need to know, that's where your Big Mac comes from. They didn't download it. They didn't print it on a 3D printer. I've eaten some that I think maybe they did. But that was this was a normal part of life, in Bible culture. And I know something about critters. I've helped pull calves at a dairy farm before. I've I've fed them. I've given them shots. I've had to rope them. I've branded them. I've done all of these things. And you know I've milked them. I've been around. I, listen, we've had pets. We our dog just died about a month ago. And I know something about critters, that when you care, listen, whether it be critters or children, anything or anyone that you care for and take care of, you get emotionally attached to them. You ever notice that? Some more than others, but I mean, even even rough redneck men you don't just kill animals like it's nothing. Not the ones that you've been taken care of. You put a lot of you into caring for those critters and you don't take that lightly. This was a personal experience. The sacrifice of these animals was a horrible thing to human senses and emotions. But once again, it was a sweet, smelling savor to the lord next i want to point out that the blood demonstrates the holiness of god and the awfulness of sin you know when you think about sin when you think about humans at me and you as sinners you can justify your sin You can soften it, you can water it down, you can even deny it. But according to the word of God, our sin is an abomination to a holy God. Isaiah 59, verse number 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Psalm 7, verse 11, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. We find that a holy God does not look down at sin as like, oh, that's no big deal. He sees it as an abomination. And just as that blood sacrifice comes up before the Lord as a sweet-smelling savor, Our sin comes up before the Lord as a stench that makes him want to vomit. It's disgusting in his eyes. Things that we think, well, it's no big deal, nobody's perfect. God says he's angry with the wicked. And our sins have separated us. We have enmity between us and a holy God because of our sin. You know what people would say to what I just preached today? they'd say, wait a minute, isn't that the Old Testament God? How many times have I heard that? When you start preaching the whole counsel of God and you start talking about God's holiness and how that God does indeed judge sin, I say, wait a minute, that's the, that's the God of the Old Testament. I got news for you, He doesn't change. There's not two different God's. Hebrews 12, verse number 29, New Testament. For our God is a consuming fire. You say, well, that's to the Hebrews. That's the tribulation. You can put that in any category that you want. But how about this one? Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter number one. 2 Thessalonians chapter one. And verse number seven, it says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Hey, listen, this is the same God. And listen, he's putting up, he's winking at the wickedness of man, but he is commanding all men everywhere to repent. Ephesians 5, verse number 6, Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. And then Colossians 3, 5, and 6 says the same thing. Turn to Revelation 19. I love Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I, every time that I read this, every time I think about this, I think about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think about how that He came and how He was mistreated the first time that He came. He was perfect. He healed. He fed. He helped. He told the truth. You couldn't find any fault in him, but yet he suffered over and over again, and then ultimately the cross of Calvary. I think, wow, what an injustice how he was treated the first time. And then I read about how it's going to be the second time. I don't know if it's the man in me, the testosterone in me, but I, I think about this in my mind, and I go, yeah, that's our Savior. Verse number 11, John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. He was clothed in a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me tell you something, folks. The blood demonstrates... The holiness of God and the awfulness of sin cannot deny it, cannot justify it. Sin is a horrible thing. If you ever doubt it, you ought to just... I mean, you can read the Ten Commandments. You can read these verses that I just showed you. But if you really want to see how disgusting an abomination that our sin is in the eyes of God, you ought to just think about what happened on Calvary's cross and what Jesus went through. You know, the Bible says it pleased the Lord, God the Father, to bruise Him. It pleased God to put that wrath upon His Son, Jesus Christ. Why did it please Him? Because our sin, somebody had to pay or God would not be a holy and a just judge. I've said this before, but imagine that you have committed a crime that you know you're guilty of, and I mean, you are busted. They got the goods on you. And you're sitting in a trial, and there's a a court case that's on the docket right in front of you. And you you, you see, you, you watch and you see, and the guy being tried right in front of you did the same thing that you did. And he goes before the judge and the judge looks and says, you know what? I'm in a good mood. I'm going to, just going to let you off. You're free to go. And so you're sitting there and you think, oh, this is my lucky day. And then you go up and the judge says, you know what? I'm going to give you the maximum sentence. What, what are you going to think of that Judge. You're going to say, that judge is unfair and unjust. That judge is not righteous and not holy. And so God has to treat the entire human race fairly. And the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. And so God is a righteous judge. Somebody's got to pay for my sins and your sins. You can try to pay for him yourself. The only payment is eternal hell. Jesus took the wrath of God upon him on Calvary's cross. When you and I receive that payment, we get Christ's righteousness. He bears our sins. Man, that ought to make you rejoice and shout. That ought to make you feel good to think of what Jesus did for us to be saved by the grace of God. In conclusion, Romans 3.25 says, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. Hey, what does propitiation mean? It's a big word, I know. But it simply means to make someone favorably inclined. It's a covering, if you will. I mean, it, 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 it would be to, to, to not appease, but to satisfy a God. Hey, can you imagine, can you imagine if You're a, I mean, you're a dumpster that's just full of rotten stuff. You ever, you ever walk by some of those dumpsters at a restaurant where they poured all of that grease and leftover food and stuff on a hot summer day? There is something about that that's just repulsive. And can you imagine if you could take and just put something over that dumpster and it just Eliminates the odor and you look at it and now it doesn't look, now it doesn't look like a dumpster. It looks like a Ferrari right off the showroom. Wow. That that would be amazing. Guess what? That's what the righteousness of Jesus Christ does for you and I. God doesn't see us as that dumpster. He sees us as a brand new, creature in Christ Jesus. Our sins washed away, clean, He sees us with the righteousness of His precious Son. Why? Because through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. That propitiation is through the blood of Jesus Christ. I'd say the blood's a pretty important truth. Amen? Amen. And I close with this verse, 1 Peter 1, verse number 18. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, there's all kinds of corruptible things that men try to redeem themselves with. Paying money, doing good deeds, religious rituals, and so forth. Those are all corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. In short... Peter's saying your religion, you're not redeemed with any of those things, but verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. Peter says you're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. We've seen an overview of the history of the blood, but I close with this question. Are you redeemed? Are you redeemed? Do you have a covering? Do you have a propitiation? Is your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ or is your faith in yourself, your religion, your affiliation, your nationality, your culture? Because none of those things can redeem you, only the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the word of God and for the precious blood that you shed upon Calvary's cross. And Lord, I I just believed in my heart that we needed this focus and this reminder of the blood of Christ today. I pray, Father, that we would always be mindful of your precious blood. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to tell others about the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Have your will and way in the invitation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remain seated, heads bowed and eyes closed. I'd like to give you some time here to talk to God. If you're not saved, or if you're not 100% sure that you're saved, we'd like to give you an opportunity to get saved today. We'd be happy to open up the Word of God, show you what you need to see, pray with you, help you know before you leave that you're saved. If you understand the gospel and you understand the value of the blood of Christ, you can get saved right there by yourself. Just you and God. You don't need my help. You don't need anyone else's help. You just need to provide God a sinner. Let Him know who you are. (laughs) And then ask Him to save you based on what He did on Calvary's cross. It's that simple. Now, if you're already saved and a child of God, I hope this reminder has been a blessing to you of how important and valuable the precious blood of Christ is.